Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, I absolutely love the overall storyline of Scripture. Uh, there's obviously value in reading the Word of God no matter what portion you read, but there's also incredible value reading all the way through. And so maybe you are one of those folks who begins a new year with a resolution uh, to read all the way through the Bible during the coming year. Uh, like many of us, we may get bogged down when we come to those genealogies or when we come to the Chronicles in the Old Testament. But I would encourage you as we begin this new year uh, to devote yourself to the reading of God's Word. In fact, I'm reminded of Paul's language in Ephesians 6 when he encourages us to put on the whole armor of God at the close of that discussion. He encourages us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to pray as if to say if our life is focused on the Word of God and we are led in praying to God, uh, then we can overcome anything that, the, the, anything that Satan throws in our paths. And so I'd like for us to, to pause again for just a moment and ask God to bless us in those two respects as we begin this new year. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we do believe in the power of your word, a power to bless us, to encourage us, to call us to live more like Jesus, a power even to rebuke us in those moments when we need to be challenged to the core of who we are. And so, God, would you bless us with a heart for, uh, for, for dwelling upon your word as we begin this new year. And God, we likewise believe in the power of prayer, I believe in the power of bringing our requests and our thanksgivings to you. And likewise, we pray, God, individually as well as collectively, that we will be more and more a people of prayer, trusting you to do beyond what we can even ask or imagine. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I have the wonderful privilege of teaching preaching courses at Lubbock Christian University at the graduate level. And one of the textbooks that I often use in those preaching classes is a book entitled The Sermon as Symphony, in which the author compares a sermon to a symphony, to a piece of music, a symphony that may include several movements as you listen to that piece of music that may evoke a variety of moods or emotions. As I indicated in last week's sermon, one of the beauties of God's Word is that the authors of Scripture communicate the truths of God with a variety of literary forms and features, the, the beauty of the diversity of Scripture, Scripture that includes narratives and psalms and prayers and gospels and letters and apocalyptic literature and any number of other types of literature, all of those incredible features. And in many of those literary forms, you will discover a variety of movements as the author builds to the truth that he wants us to grab hold of. And those scriptures likewise may evoke a variety of emotions or moods. We may experience joy or lament as we read. There may be tension as we come to grips with the values and the lifestyle that scripture calls us to. 
Scripture may encourage us. On the other hand, Scripture may rebuke or indict us. Well, let me suggest today that Scripture, when all is said and done, Scripture is the overall story of God and how the story of God intersects with our lives, with our stories. And so Scripture might well be defined as God's story and our response to God's story. And as you read that overall overall storyline of Scripture, I would suggest there are at least six major acts, six major movements in the story. I think as I talk this morning, you'll recognize that we know them well, but I think there's value in being reminded of that overall story of God as we begin a new year, and especially as we step into this new series where we will focus on what it means to be like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to be like Jesus. And so the first movement of this story is the story of creation itself. Movement number one, creation. In bold, dramatic ways, the opening lines of Genesis chapter 1 introduce us to our God, to our Creator, A God who is powerful, good, gracious, and a God who above everything else, a God who longs for relationship with us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that may also beg the question as we begin to explore Scripture, that may also beg the question, and so what was God, what was the divine family doing before creation? Because the word translated God in Scripture is Elohim. It is a plural form, obviously referring as we read Scripture to the divine family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what was God, what was the divine family doing before creation? And we might respond as we watch how Scripture plays out by saying, living in relationship with one another, living in community with one another, unity, intimacy. And at the heart of that creation story, as we are introduced to God, we learn that we are created in the very image of God, that we are created for relationship. Words that you know well from Genesis 1, God said, let us, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In creation, we find our identity, that we are created in the very image of God that we are unique, that we are special, that we are loved. In creation, we find our identity and we find our purpose, that we were created to care for this world that God created and that we were created for relationship. And so the first movement in this overall story, that movement of creation, is an invitation for us to open our eyes to God's creation, and to God's desire for our lives, which led the psalmist on numerous occasions, one from Psalm chapter 8, to to simply break out in praise to God because of how God has created us and what God has created us for. He asked the question, when I consider your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Who are we, God, that you are mindful of us, human beings that you care for them? And yet the declaration of that first movement is that God does indeed care for us, that God has created us in his very image. And so the opening and closing lines of that psalm declare, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We are led in that first movement to acknowledge God, to praise God. And yet, as you are well aware, we don't turn but a couple of pages in Scripture until we come to a second movement. And that second movement is all about revolt. It is all about rebellion. It is all about humanity failing to acknowledge and to serve the God who created us. We learn from the story of Adam and Eve that God created us with the freedom and the ability to choose. He placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in paradise with basically one lingering question. Will you trust me? Will you trust God? And in that story of Adam and Eve, in fact, in the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah and the flood, the story of the Tower of Babel, we find our story, a story where we, just like the ancients of old, pursue our own agendas, where we try to be the God of our own lives, where we rebel against God, where we break the relationships that God intended for us to enjoy, relationships with God and with one another. The sad part of this chapter, of this movement, the sad part is that we have followed the lead of Adam and Eve by trying to squeeze life and meaning out of everything but God. And so Paul would declare in Romans chapter 3, in fact, as he quotes from numerous Old Testament texts, Paul would remind us that all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory that God intended from the very beginning. Fallen short of the glory that God intended when he created us in his very image. There is none righteous, no, not a single one of us, Paul will declare. And while we are certainly aware of sin in the world and sin in our lives, I, I fear that far too often when we read that movement of the story, we think about stuff that happened all of those years ago. But might I suggest that because God's story intersects with our stories and because we see our story played out in the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, etc., that it ought to lead each one of us to ponder in our own lives. And so how have I rebelled against God? How have I been guilty of revolt? In what ways have I ignored God or put something or someone ahead of God? Because again, we're all guilty, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thank God that the story does not end with this second movement, that movement of revolt and sin. The God of creation, the God who longs for relationship with us, is a God who never abandoned us. He continued to pursue us. As one of the great Reformation leaders put it, God is the hound of heaven pursuing us, longing for relationship with us. And it began with a promise to Abraham, who would be the father of a great nation, who would be the father of a people 
that we know as the people of Israel. And so the third movement in the story is a movement that is all about people, specifically the people of Israel. To Abraham, who had no children and whose wife was past childbearing age, God made a threefold promise. One, he says, Abram, you will be the father of a great nation, a great people. You will have so many descendants that they will, they will be even greater than the number of stars in the sky and the number of sands on the seashore. You'll not be able to count them. Second, the promise that that people, the people of Israel, would be blessed with land. Ultimately, we watch that story unfold as they make their way, even in the midst of all of their unfaithfulness, as they make their way to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But there's another piece of the story, another piece of the promise, because ultimately God tells Abram through his descendants, specifically through the Messiah, that all nations would be blessed. A promise that includes us. A promise that evokes praise that ought to evoke that spine-tingling feeling as we realize that through the Messiah, we likewise are a part of the promise that God made to Abraham. The people of Israel called to be a light to the nations. And we are aware of that. We remember that as we watch the storyline of the people of Israel unfold. This third movement of the story begins with a promise to Abraham, includes Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, the giving of the ten words or the ten commandments at Sinai, Saul and David and Solomon during what we know as the United Kingdom days, and then the divided kingdom, captivity, and then return from captivity, Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple, Ezra and spiritual renewal, Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, prophets who keep pointing us to the promises of God, the coming Messiah. Because you see, the promises of God are unfolding throughout this movement. All the people of Israel, just like those stories earlier in Genesis, the people of Israel continued to revolt against God. But there are glimmers of hope. And God's promise, in spite of their unfaithfulness, God's promise will remain true. God is at work through his people, even in their unfaithfulness. And so as Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart will put it in one of their books, while we may be prone to look at all of those stories in the Old Testament and talk about heroes in the story, and rightly so in one respect, their observation is, no, God is the ultimate hero of the story. God is the one who is at work in faithful ways all the way through. It is still God's story that is at work. There is the promise that all nations will be blessed through Abram. There is the hope of a Messiah who would bring a new day, who would bring salvation, healing, and hope, a Messiah who would truly be a light to the nations. That season of anticipation, of waiting, that we've just celebrated in the Advent season. The theme of the story is that God will make a way. And in Jesus, in Jesus, we will forever be changed. And so just like in a symphony, where if you've listened to very many pieces of music, you know that the movements are coming and you know that ultimately it's going to swell to a crescendo 
Likewise, in this story, you cannot wait. If you've been watching the story unfold, you cannot wait for the next movement of the story with all of the emotions, with all of the joy that that movement brings. And so the fourth movement in the story is simply declared with the name of Jesus himself. The words that we know so well from the Gospel of John The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In a world filled with too many words, Jesus came as the Word. He came from above. The kingdom of God is breaking in. What God intended, what God imagined, all the way back in Genesis 1 in the story of creation, what God intended and what God imagined from the very beginning, that we might live to His glory, that we might experience relationship with one another. Jesus comes to restore. And so you find those incredible salvation words in the New Testament, redeem, restore, reconcile, that Jesus comes in order that we might experience eternal life, kingdom life, abundant life. And there are so many conversations in the Gospels, and we'll be exploring several of them in this series. So many conversations in the Gospels, like the one in John chapter 4, where Jesus explains to the woman at the well that it is through him, that it is through this movement in the story, that it is through him that we receive living water, Water that will cause us to never be thirsty again. Water that becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. Jesus came to save hell-bound people from hell. Yes. But let's not stop there. Jesus came in order that we might experience abundant life right now. He came to give life to thirsty people. He came that we might experience eternal life now in the the here and now. Why did Jesus come? Well, obviously, he came in order to die for our sins. But yes, even beyond the forgiveness of sins we enjoy, he came to bring the kingdom of God, the reign of God, to show us a way out of our thirst, to show us how to live. And so thank God for this fourth movement of the story. Jesus shows us a whole new way. He was born, lived, died, was raised, ascended to heaven, and he's still with us today. And so we focus on his life and his ministry. And as Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians 15, we focus on his death and his resurrection, that which is at the heart of the gospel story. As the people of God, especially as we think about a new year and new opportunities, as the people of God, that is where our focus needs to be. It is on Jesus. In the words of Colossians 1, again, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. And so I, as one who stands before you most every Sunday, I want to be as clear as I can be. Because we are human We will never do everything perfectly in our lives. We'll never do everything perfectly as a church. It's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to pursue our own agendas. It's easy to try to find our purpose in life and so many other things. Our jobs, our money, politics, even our families. 
And so please hear me again. We'll never do everything perfectly. But if I know my heart as I preach and teach in this place and the heart of this church's leadership, I can assure you our commitment as a church is to be focused on Jesus. I still love Leonard Sweet's words that I heard him use a number of years ago as he talked about relationship with Jesus. He said, bottom line, I'm, I'm just crazy in love with Jesus. I'm crazy in love with Jesus. And I pray that that's the desire and the pursuit of all of us. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm crazy in love with Jesus. And then... Because of that fourth movement, because of the coming of Jesus to this world, you and I have the privilege of being a part of God's family. We have the privilege of being a part of his church, the new creation, the new creation, the incredible invitation for us to join with God in this overall story, the new creation of God the fifth movement of the story. Jesus ascended back to heaven, left us with a promise of his coming. He ascended back to heaven, but he left a people behind to continue his mission in this world, a mission to reconcile all things to himself. And so Paul, in those great words of 2 Corinthians 5, says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us, he gave you and me the ministry of reconciliation. And I want us to imagine, I want us to grab hold of that today. I want us to grab hold of the kind of trust that God has in us, the kind of trust that Jesus has in us. He left us behind in order to carry on his mission. As Paul will put it in Ephesians chapter 3, it is through the church, it is through us that the manifold wisdom of God is made known in the world, even among the powers in the heavenly places. He left us behind. But hear me carefully as well. He did not leave us alone. And so we affirm the presence of Holy Spirit in our lives, our guide, our comforter. Holy Spirit who is a deposit, a guarantee of what is to come. Holy Spirit who strengthens us in our weaknesses, who grows the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not something we do on our own. It's because of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And so the church the family of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the new creation that has, been, that has been redeemed by God into his story. Jesus came to restore us to what God intended from the very beginning. And so I'm convinced the language ought to be similar. We talk about creation, and now we talk about the new creation of God. The language, the words ought to be similar this incredible invitation that God has given us, that we're called to honor God's purpose in our lives, to love God and to love others, to worship God, to be, in the pre to be the presence of Jesus in our world, to be a family where folks can find belonging, to be a, a church that sacrifices as Jesus sacrificed, this new creation that longs to be more and more like Jesus every day, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to be like Jesus.
And so again, we find our purpose in Jesus. That language again in Colossians 1, everything, absolute everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in Christ and finds its purpose in Him. And Paul echoes the same thing in Ephesians 1. It is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for, part of the overall purpose that he's working out in everything and everyone. And so we lean into that story. We lean into that story, not only grateful for the work of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit in our lives, but we lean into that story because we also believe there is a final movement in the story, a belief that Jesus is coming again, a belief that God will bring everything to a triumphant conclusion, a belief, a conviction that we as the people of God will live with the divine family forever. And so just let that word forever sink in for a moment, that we will live with the divine family forever. The prayer of the first century church was, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But, but let me also say, and I want you to hear me clearly here as well, it isn't just a matter of longing for heaven, although we do long to be with God forever, ever. It's not a matter of sitting on a rooftop waiting for Jesus to come. No, it is a call to live life with urgency, to live life with faithfulness, to share the good news with others, to engage in life the way Jesus engaged in life. Again, to think like, act like, and be like Jesus. Because our conviction in a forever is a conviction, as Brian McLaren would put it, and I love his language, that because of the resurrection and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that God has looked into that forever future and he has yanked that future into the present moment, that heaven has come down, that we experience abundant life, eternal life right now. And so this call to live life with joy and peace and urgency when life may be just as chaotic as life can be. Here's the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 6 as he draws a contrast between all of the challenges of the moment growing out of what he has just said regarding this ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, and I'm reading from the message paraphrase, we, we beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given us. Don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given us. And so if you're prone to make New Year's resolutions, maybe the words of 2 Corinthians 6 are the words that you and I need to grab hold of today. The resolution, the commitment that we make for 2021, that we're not going to squander one bit of this marvelous light, life that we experience because of the movement of God that continues to unfold. And that in the church, the new creation of God, that God is doing things beyond what we could ever dream, what we could ever imagine. And so I invite you into the conversation in the coming weeks as we talk about what it means to be like Jesus. For today, I want us to simply pause in the midst of talking about this overall story. I want us to pause and simply be grateful. And in the midst of being grateful for what God has done in our lives to make a commitment in the words of the song we're about to sing, to make a commitment to Jesus that says, Jesus, you are all.
to us. And so let the glory of your name be the passion of this church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe, Jesus, that you are all to us. Let's pray together again. Father, thank you for your story that continues to unfold in our lives and for your gracious invitation for us to step into that story, to be your sons and daughters, to be that new creation, to follow in the steps of Jesus and to be salt and light and leaven to our world. Father, because of the life you have given us, may our commitment be that Jesus is our everything and that we never squander any part of this precious life that you've given us. May that be our commitment today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.